Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello all, Annie Mack here reporting from a half-term holiday. Um, It's Friday and uh, this week's episode is called On Air. On Air um, is obviously a radio term and it's specifically about radio. It's about voices riding radio waves, travelling through the air at the speed of light. It's about the magic and the wonder of the format that is radio, a format I am obsessed with and in love with and has kind of defined my life. It's about specifically two years of my life from 2002 to 2004 when my radio dream was realised and I got a job as a broadcast assistant at BBC Radio 1. And it all began in a room in a building called Yolding House that we used to call The Dark Side. When you came into the old entrance at, at Yolding House, there was one side of the of the main entrance was the sort of special was the daytime office, and the other side, G one, was the was the dark side, which is the specialist office, which I kind of ran the specialist department at Radio One. So we had Steve Lamack, John Peel, Fabio um, and Groove Rider, Ali Nightingale, all the dance lot, Giles, Giles Peterson. Oh, um, the dream team. The dream team. Um, I used to do p- keepy uppies with them in yeah. the in the office. And it, I just there was a fantastic atmosphere in that office because it was pre-social media then. It was the early noughties, wasn't it? And I just remember the kind of raves we used we used to have on a Friday afternoon techno and drum and bass offs, didn't we? Yeah. Where someone would start, we'll put a techno record on. We all had speakers on our desk then. So if someone would start with a techno record about three o'clock on a Friday, and then someone from the other side of the office would drop a drum and bass record, and then it would be a hard house Gabba record. And it was just a lot of fun. It was a real, um, it felt like a club, you know, because we were all, it felt everyone that was there in that specialist department was in Radio 1 because they loved music and that was the main driving force for us being there and it was just a fantastic atmosphere because it was a group of like-minded people um, you know and we used to work hard and we used to party hard didn't we? I learned a lot I'm sure you did in both respects <laughs> That was Rhys Hughes, uh, the man who gave me the golden ticket to work at Radio 1. He was in charge of all the specialist radio shows. What a job um, and what a time. Can you imagine what it was like to enter that room as a wide-eyed 24-year-old who had always wanted to work in radio? Um, Giles Peterson, Steve Lamack, Annie Nightingale, Marianne Hobbs, the Dream Team, Pete Tong, Judge Jules and, of course, John Peel. I am talking to you on Friday 24th of October. This, today, is the 15th anniversary of the death of John Peel. And he was and is one of the most original and treasured radio DJs in the world. A total inspiration. I will never forget where I was when I was rang and told of the news of his death. Um, I was in Argos in Brixton with my mum, who started crying. Um, It was really hard to believe. He was such a kind of vital and huge presence in that office, in that place. He represents to me the human connection, the the part of radio that I love the most. Um, A voice, a trusted voice and companion talking through the air directly to you, one person listening, and um, advising you, guiding you, enlightening you to music and sounds and helping you go down this path of discovery. Um, John Peel, for me, is the kind of essence of of music radio, and I am, as so many other people are, so grateful for his existence. Um, at the time, 
when I was this kind of new girl in the office, you know, he was the one that I was most like in awe of, obviously. Um, he was very much there every day. You know, he had a show every night. He used to have a nap in the studio every day. He used to put a newspaper over his head and put his feet up on the table and, and have a sleep. And the whole office staff kind of deferred to that and were really quiet and put their headphones on. But the rest of the time it was beautiful chaos. You know, there was sound clashes all the time. Um, it was loud. It was Larry. You'd be tripping over vinyl and mini discs, cassette tapes. And John was kind of like this alternative music Santa Claus. He used to gather up all the music that he got sent in these big mail sacks and he used to kind of put them over his shoulder and or drag them out of the room and put them in the boot of his car and drive them back to his um, to his house in the countryside. Um, he was so kind to me when I started the show. So kind. I got the show in July 2004. It was called The Mashup and it started at 8pm, or no, 9pm on Thursday nights and John Peel was on after me and he was always there. Um, kind of commenting and, and, and you know on my show at the start of his show with his bottle of red wine and I really treasure the fact that I was able to be on air alongside him for a short period of my life. So I've had 15 years on the radio since my show started and 15 years as a DJ, DJing around the world. I've kind of launched my company AMP and that's still going uh, and yeah my career has evolved as careers do. But that time, between 2002 and 2004, was such a golden time. It feels like zoomed in for me in terms of my memories. They're so vivid. Um, So before I got my show, I worked as a broadcast assistant on what was then called the evening session. The presenter that I worked for first was Steve Lamack. Then there was Colin Murray in a kind of six-month interim period before Zane Lowe arrived on the station. And Zane Lowe was highly anticipated. Radio 1 had tried to had tried to get him off XFM. They didn't want him to go. They didn't let him go. Uh, there was a kind of awkward time, and that's when Colin Murray filled in. Um, but I was on that show, so I, I was lucky enough to be part of the team that launched Zane's show when he joined Radio 1. And it was a really transformative time for me. He was a huge inspiration in terms of how he approached the radio desk as if it was a musical instrument and also just this energy that he brought to the show. He had this kind of wild and quite unpredictable um, energy that he came with every single night and his kind of musicality um, in the way that he broadcast the shows, in the way that he spoke over and under and kind of wove his words throughout the music. Um so yeah, it was it was one year of my life that I worked on his show, but it exposed me to the inner workings of what I believe was the world's best music radio show at the time. And it was a year also significantly when I finally managed to realise my ambition to, to become a radio DJ and, and became the host of the mashup, Animax mashup. Uh, what a name. Um, so yeah, so I was so happy for this episode to reminisce about that golden time with Zane Lowe. Uh, when he came over to London, I got an hour with him. And, you know, this is a guy who has lit up an entire generation of kids' evenings on Radio 1. And also, after 12 years, now moved to Los Angeles and set up Beats 1, the radio station affiliated with Apple Music, and is the global creative director of Apple Music. You know, his career has really evolved, and I wanted to speak to him about that, um, about, you know, his decisions that he's made throughout his life. And also just kind of zoom in on that time where our our careers kind of conjoined for that year in 2003. So we sat down, we reminisced, we laughed, um, and it was such an enjoyable conversation. Let's kick it off. Zane Lowe, enter the podcast. Zane, thank you for being here. Of course. Um, It's good to see you. Really good to see you. I wanted to chat to you about... The most specifically about that that kind of year when our when our careers were conjoined, mm-hmm. I thought it was two years, but in fact it's only one. Are you talking I, about the first two years we worked together, or when you started to broadcast this? Well, kind of that whole that whole journey. It's going to be a quick and quick conversation. <laughs> There's not a lot of. Memory. Can you remember stuff? Well, I spoke to our mutual friend Joe this morning, and oh, he has given me everything. He's given me some amazing ones. But let's start with that 
that kind of interim period mm-hmm. after you were on XFM and before you joined Radio 1. Ugh. So was that a six-month period? I think it was, yeah, six, seven, eight months, something like that. It felt like a long, much longer than that. And you weren't allowed work then? It was a gardening leave? No, nah, it was weird. It was it's just a weird thing. Like, oh, they meant well. You know, they wanted me to stay. And, um, and I didn't. You know, and it wasn't that I didn't want to stay. I just knew I had an opportunity. I wanted to take the opportunity. I wanted to go. And um, and it, it just very quickly went from being flattering to just annoying to like potentially, you know, destroying the opportunity. Mm. I mean, I remember there was a pretty sobering conversation that Francis, who you know, um, who was representing me at the time, had with someone at, at Radio 1 at the BBC where they said, look, you know, we want to, we want to keep this position open, but if you can't come to a solution... At some point, we're going to have to give it to somebody else. And that was really like, wow, this is going to go south. And so in the end, you know, we had to do whatever it took. And whatever it took was cut a check. Yeah. And that's what it was. Yeah. But I'm glad I did it. And I don't regret it. And, you know, if, if anyone's listening to this and you get yourself in a situation where for one reason or another you're contractually stuck, mm. um, what you really want to do is is get, is fi- find a way for it to end, anything to end well. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know? And yeah. it just it just meant when I left XFM, which had been a great time for me. Mm. I had I had bad vibes. Yeah, that's not a nice way to. And end. it just it took me a long time actually to end mm. up kind of getting past that. But mm. yeah, how long were you at X? Oh man, about three years. I, I think. should know this, but yeah, no, about three years. Three years. Yeah. And so when you were leaving X, you had um, what? How many years kind of radio DJing experience had you had? Three years. That was it. Yeah. You'd done TV. You'd done TV. production before. Yeah, making beats and all that stuff. I wasn't really DJing out at that point. I I, I had no real radio experience. Um, you know, for me, it was kind of supplementary income. I was just looking for a shot to like get a second job because. Mm. Um, you know, I just felt like that would that would complement the MTV gig pretty nicely. Mm. One was sort of more daytime. I thought I'll do some night shifts in the nighttime and, you know, sweet as. And and so, you know, I was trying to reach out to Andrew Phillips and get hold of him. But before I even had the chance, he actually reached out to me because his son had told Andrew to, to look me up. So that's how Andrew it began. Andrew being the guy who ran XFM. Yeah, sorry, he ran yeah. XFM. And, and so that was it. And so and so he, he said, I'll try you out on overnights and eventually we'll see if we can find you a slot. And I didn't stay on overnights very long, so that's mm. how I knew that perhaps I was, you know, I had some kind of natural inclination towards that stuff. And did did you want, did you like have the natural kind of I personal urge? Yeah, I yeah, loved yeah, it. Yeah. As soon as I went on the air, I, the, the, performing, the performance side of my personality yeah. connected to it. Yeah. And I recognized that it was, it gave me the spontaneity, that that sense that I, of, of excitement I used to get when I used to go on, I say stages, but that primarily very small, Fourteen-inch <laughs> mm. stages and tiny bars in Auckland, you know, with, with <laughs> yeah, my rap yeah. group and stuff. I, that, that, I got that same sense of excitement going on the radio that you don't get in TV, even live TV. There's so many cooks in the kitchen and so many things that have to be done before one shot or one show gets done. Mm. It's really long. It's more like making an album, but it's the mm. radio thing was like just doing a gig it was cool. Immediate live, Straight even up. though there's no one in the room apart from your production team. I kind of dug that, which I you mean, didn't have XFM, right? No, I didn't. Not until I started my show, and even then, it was just one guy. Mm. Um, who ended up becoming the program, uh, the the person who scheduled the music, which worked beautifully for me. Yeah, because you got you got to play good stuff. I got to play whatever I want. I got more free play, right? Mm. Which is what I really wanted. I, I would have taken that over the check. So you know, f- for me, I, I loved it straight away, and I knew that this was going to be something I would do. Meanwhile, over at Radio One, yeah, Colin Murray is filling in for you during that interim time. Yeah, yeah. the kind of six seven month slot. Uh-huh. I am being the assistant producer of broadcast assistant on his show then and I remember the feeling of anticipation for you arriving <laughs> and the team assembling for you mm. and it feeling really really exciting and probably like 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 really exciting as it was but the weight just made it even more like whoa I, know. Um, I wish I designed it that way but I didn't I was just <laughs> sitting in Kentish Town stewing <laughs> <laughs> yeah freaking out freaking out so so where you when you arrived at Radio 1 was that something that you'd always wanted to do or was that an opportunity that came up you're like yeah okay we'll go for the national like I'm a bit I'm a bit naive in that department like you know if I'm going to visualize or I'm going to attempt to achieve something it was always more, at that point at least, it was very much in the making music space. Um, yeah. When I was at XFM, I was happy. And and we were making a racket. Like for a very small radio station, we were, you know, we were riding that wave of Deftones and Limp Biscuit and, mm. and The Strokes and all this sort of stuff. Um, and we were the station that played that round the clock. Mm. And that stuff was connecting. Mm. So... 
I mean, I hate to say it, but the general feeling at XFM was we're winning, which yeah. is kind of ludicrous to think now because it's a London-based small alternative station. Still yeah. impactful, but you know what I mean? We were proud of what we were doing and we, we felt like Radio 1 was like not moving the needle at all. Yeah. And um, and so when I was asked to to actually take the Radio 1 job, which took two pilots, I was very upset at having to do the second one. Oof. Very upset. <laughs> I was just like, are you, can you swear on this thing? Yeah, Are you course. fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I did it. Um, and then when they offered me the job, I remember saying to, to my manager again, like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. Like, and there was a few people in the industry, some of which you will know, who yeah. suggested I don't take it because yeah. they felt like Radio 1 was not, like I said, was not really connecting to that mm. particular audience very well. Yeah. And, you know, my manager rightly said, that's why they want you. And mm. and he's the one who said, look, why would you stay at a place that where you're kind of peaking right now? Why mm. wouldn't you There's go? There's nowhere to go. Start, yeah. start a revolution somewhere else. Mm. And then mm. and then you'll get your era. You'll get, mm. yeah. and you say that in America, they go, era? Then you uh, get your era. Your era. Yeah. 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 So you arrive. And um, you were different than any other DJ that had been at Radio 1 up to that point. Real shouty. Uh, <laughs> how, how, how do you feel like you were received? Oh, um, In the building. Uh, in the building. What a good question. Wow. Annie, I've never thought about that. Well, that's um, a good thing. That's a very good thing. Yeah, because I was so obsessed with how the audience were taking it, mm -hmm. you know. And I also assume, well, you know, you've, you've waited around for me long enough. I guess you're happy to have me. But in the building, I think I think within the staff, the production staff, there was, as you say, there was a sense of like fresh blood, something new, something exciting. Mm. Um, I think some of the DJs were probably a bit weary. Mm -hmm. But I think, and you know this, DJs are weary. <laughs> DJs are wary. We're wary types. We're wary. You know, well, we're... because our jobs are consistently precarious, yeah. especially unless you've, you know, you're in where your situation where you kind of, you know, you run the show. <laughs> like you are literally like a pawn in a game of chess by your bosses and you can go and be moved at any point. So, yeah, you have a right to be wary, I, I think. I think so, too. And I think I think that I think it works for whoever is employing talent to keep talent feeling that way. Mm. I think it's a I think it's a it's a it's a tactic. Mm. And um yeah, for a time period there, I think we all <laughs> we all played along, yeah. you know. But I mean, look, I, I'm a pretty easygoing person. I mean, you have to go some to really like long term piss me off, mm. and so and I and I and I expected that, you know. I was, I mean, you don't keep a job open for eight months or whatever, and not have some DJs go like, who does this guy think he is? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you just got to ride that out. But also, I think it was a lot, you know, that wariness was a lot to do with how different you were. So kind of the way that you approached presenting was mm -hmm. a completely different perspective than traditional way of doing it in mm -hmm. that you came at it like, as you said, from the performance aspect, but mm -hmm. also from a, a music making aspect where the, the desk wasn't just, you know, a facilitator. It was mm -hmm. actually an instrument mm -hmm. and you were stood up. No mm -hmm. one else had stood up up to Which that point. Which was hard at that point because the desks were fixed. Yeah, so the desks were these low down like BBC 70s Do you remember how I used desk. to have to stand? Yeah. With my legs, legs like akimbo. A, akimbo, like I'm like, so it's awful. It was manspreading at its worst, but it was functional. I had to, I never joined. How did you find those first few weeks? Can you remember them? Yeah, I can. I can remember them pretty well. I mean, I remember the two weeks leading up to the first show. It was July 2003, by the way. It was I've done July my facts. First. July 1st, and it was 8 p.m., and John Peel was after you at 10 p.m. That's right. And I couldn't even get my head around that. I remember I remember a lot of discussion about what the first song was going to be, the second song, the third song. Like the first half an hour, we just went round in circles on, I remember. Um, and yeah, I was terrified I and mean, I was scared. I, I was scared because I knew that, that Radio 1 had hired me to be me. So I couldn't come in and ease people in. And we even had a conversation. I don't know if you remember this, but you, me, because what people have put, what we haven't established maybe is that mm. Annie was on my team. Yeah, I was part of your team. Part of my team. Yeah. And so you, me, Rob and Joe, who were the team, mm -hmm. we had a conversation and I think might have been Rob said, you know, maybe we should just kind of ease people in a little bit and like dial it back a little bit. And it was Joe who was like, nope, no, give it to him between the eyes. Go for it. Yeah. 
And I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest. Even when I put the, the, the mic out for the first time, I didn't know what version Did you not? of me. No. I had no idea whether I was going to, you know, go for it or, or lean back. And in the end, I went for it. If you listen back to that link now, Joe <laughs> has played that to me before. In the past, we found an old copy of the first show and oh my God. <laughs> Why? What's it like? I'm just so screamy. So mm. yelly. Mm. I sound like I'm having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's eight o'clock. It's right now. Ah, let's and, go. And did, we had Crazy. the ECG. So this is another thing we we'd spent ages crafting is the opening. Yeah. The, the intro, which was just a heartbeat. Do, do. heartbeat. Oh my god, how pretentious! It's so beautiful looking back. It's on brilliant. It. And then the show ended with the flatline, and Joe told me this morning <laughs> that Joe told me this morning that John Peel at the time was like, "Oh, great that uh, radio's dying just before my show." <laughs> looking <laughs> like, back, it's so disrespectful. Like, oh, we just we just killed the I air. Never thought about it from that me perspective, and, and we didn't because we were so self-obsessed. Yeah. We, yeah, we were more than self-absorbed. We were, self, we were, we were self- self-obsessed because we were like really, really excited. Because it, as you said, it felt like a revolution. It felt like something really new and really exciting. And it felt like we had to, we had to deliver. And we were young. Yes, we were young. How we were old young. were you? Well, actually, I wasn't there. You were young. young. We were like thirty. What? Thirty. Two thousand thirty-one. Thirty. That's young. That no, is. Two thousand three. No, it's thirty. Thirty. There you yeah, go. Thirty. Yeah. Not even. Maybe twenty-nine. Yeah, yeah, Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about to turn 30. Still in your 20s, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, ten, things tend to happen in decades for me. Like, um, you know, I just, I was sort of in my 40s when I went over to LA and yeah. it sort of moves in, in that way for me. But yeah, it was, look, it was, it, there was a lot of excitement at the time. And I, I just, from from my perspective, I was, I was like, just hang on tight. And if you can get through the first two weeks, you'll be okay. Yeah. You know, as long as you're not fired in two weeks, you should be okay. Yeah. Do you look back at, I mean, you had 12 years in that slot, yeah. um, which which is an entire decade and more. Do you look back at that fondly? Of course. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like nothing but fondly. Mm. You know, the fondest of memories of that time. And also in a way now that I've recognized how different my objectives and my job and jobs and things I have to do and I, I do now are so different to that. I'm really glad that I've I recognized the differences mm. because I could never have a radio job just doing a radio show mm. that could be as good as that. Do you know what I mm. mean? Mm. In terms of, and I'm, I'm not talking about the difference between BBC and Apple, like mm. they're just fundamentally different, but I'm not even really referring to that. I'm referring to the time, the kind of music yep. we were playing, yep. how it was to have records before they were out. Yes. Before streaming the and good all that. Old days. You know, you know what I mean? When you would hold the record and you'd be able to sort of generate the excitement and then there would it would come out and if it performed well, you'd get another one. Mm. And you'd get to promote that one. And if that did well, you'd get another one. And that mm. was the legacy. And so, you know, it was just a really, really good time to do that. And, you know, when I made the the, the switch and went over to streaming, I thought I was continuing on with that mm-hmm. idea. And I worked out within about six months that it was very different. Mm. It's really different. Mm. How? Oh, in so many ways. I mean, you know, streaming is a place where the music exists, right? Yeah. So, so it's already there. It's got to be. Because if we're talking about it, the artists want it to be heard by everybody, right? Because yeah. it's an accumulation business. So, you know, you want 50 million, 500 million, a billion streams. That's mm. what you're trying to get to. Um and so, you know, when you're, when you're inside a streaming service, what, what you have to do is you have to really just connect to the conversation rather than try to own it. It's different when you're at a radio station and you still have the attention of a country or a city or a town. You're a satellite and you're a real beacon. And I've said this before, but you're a real beacon for the community and it's a very important role and that's why radio will continue to thrive. Mm. And that's why it survived and moved past many distribution shifts and many different media shifts. Um, it's an essential part of everyday life. Mm. But when you're in a streaming service, you know, it's moving a thousand miles an hour all the time. And so rather than try to control everything, what you have to do is you just have to try to amplify things and contextualize things and connect to things. And, you know, I listen way more than I talk. And I used to talk a lot more than I listened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know and I mean? when you say you listen, you mean you listen to music or you listen to people? All of it. Artists. All of it. Okay, I see what you mean. All of it. Like I, I listen to fans, I listen to artists, I listen to more music. I just yeah. listen. Yeah. And... um. And when I choose to talk, I try to be way more effective yeah. and way more decisive. Yeah. Whereas before, I think, God, half the shit that came out of my mouth when I would talk back in the day. But that was because my job was to talk. Of course. It was just to talk. Yeah. And now I have a lot of other jobs and radio is just one of them, you know. Um, the radio, okay, I want to ask you about that, about yeah. the importance of still having radio as a job. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you have considered not doing and why? And why do you, do you, do you have a need to keep that? 
as part mm. of your life. Because I can imagine it would be, you were doing so much. You're a global creative director of Apple Music. Mm. You don't have to be doing Beats 1, but I feel like it's part of you. This is where he reaches for a glass of water. Um, wow, I just used myself in the third person. That's yes. the worst thing I've ever... No, uh, it's fine. You know what I mean? Uh, that's an excellent question. Have I thought about it before? Yes. I have. Because it got too busy, is the, is the short answer. Yeah. Um, it just it just got too hectic trying to balance everything I felt I needed to do in that job um, and still do and commit to radio. And so what I did was I, I actually scaled my show down to an hour for a short time and um, and I to, to free myself up more time to cross the parking lot, as I, as I, as I call it, because mm. the studio's on one, in one side of the parking lot and our offices are just on the other side. And um, I just missed it, man. I just missed okay. it, and I and I realized that really it's the it's at the core of what makes me want to do the other stuff, and why am I neglecting that and putting all my time into this when that's what got me here? Mm. That's the thing that got me over to America, or got me to Radio One, or got me in these places. Mm. So to turn, if I'm ever going to turn my back on that, I need to be absolutely certain that whatever hole that leaves can be filled either with something as equally satisfying. Mm. Or that I'm willing to just close the book on it because, you know, like I have done at other points in my life, I feel good about the decision. Whereas this wasn't that. This was I need more time, and that wasn't the reason to do it. Mm. So I'm now back at two hours, and I'm actually enjoying it as much as I've ever enjoyed it before, and in some respects more, um, because of all the things I mentioned before. The fact that streaming is just bonkers. Yeah, it's just bonkers, and and I, I love trying to catch that. Because it's moving, or it's like mm. trying to catch a fly. It's yeah, like impossible, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I just, I just love that. I love that I'm never in front of it. I'm yeah. always chasing it. Yeah. I actually really, really enjoying that side of it. Do you feel like your your actual radio presentation has evolved over yeah. the years? And if so, how? Yeah. So the radio one. Obviously, was, not radio now, streaming, but the, no, just, no, just being a but DJ. But it's cool. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I made that distinction for myself, and then yeah. it sort of caught on a little bit in the press. But it's radio. There's no, mm. there's no two ways around about mm. it. Um, yeah, it has. Like when I was first at Radio One, well, XFM was just screaming, and then Radio One became controlled screaming. Yeah, and now I do less of that, and it's not that. I've grown out of it or because of my age or any of that thing. I mm. still get excited about records and I'm still totally capable of going for it. The other day I played, you know, Blood, Sweat, Sugar by Jimmy Eat World just for old time's sake and still fucking ruined the <laughs> shit out of that song. Um, I've got no problem ruining people's records. Um, put on Scenario by a Tribe Called Quest and I'll ruin the whole thing. Uh, he will. That's another thing Joe said to me this morning is you when know. you had Snow Patrol in session and um, oh, you did. we're not going there. <laughs> You We're did the Jay Z rap. Oh man, we did cover Beyonce and, and changed it from Jay Z in the range to Zany in the range. I mean, that's up there with that's up there with me replacing Ryan Gosling in the poster for Drive Rescore. Do you remember that yes. one? Oh god, that was one of the only times where I got a hammering on social media, and I went home and told my wife, and she was like, "I oh, don't listen to it, babes. It's no big deal. What'd you do anyway?" And I told her, and she was like, "Oh, you deserve everything." <laughs> um, god, remind me to tell you the time. To- oh. What? Tell me, tell me the time. Well, I rapped scenario with Leo DiCaprio one time, drunk at an after party. That was a moment. I bet he knew all the words. Oh man, he God, st- that makes me love him even more. He started it. No, I got introduced to him, and I don't know what to say to him. Yeah, it was late night. I was at his party. I come up with a bunch of people, so I was a, mm-hmm. I was plus four. Yeah, and um, I got introduced to him, and I I just thought, well, it's it's either going to be hello and goodbye, or I'll just I'll say, hey, you know, I I know you're super close with Tip. Yeah. I just started working with Tip at Beats. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. And he was mm-hmm. like, he's one of my best friends. I love him, man. I love that guy. Yeah. And I thought that'd be it. And then he goes, what's your go-to tribe lyric? <laughs> and of course you have like a stash Oh, ready. I was, oh my God. I was like back in the days when I was a teenager <laughs> before I had status and before I had a pager. And I waited and he just went, you could find the ass track listening to hip hop. <laughs> And then for like about five Mine minutes. Is, I like him, Brandon, Yellow, Puerto Rican, and Haitian. Yeah, My name is Fafta from, from the Zulu, Zulu Nation. Nation. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it, and, Jack off on the couch. Now you got Siemens furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. And then for about uh, five minutes, we just kept trading lyrics. 
um, a, a tribe lyrics. It was a, it was a funny. What moment. a moment! It was a funny, very funny experience. So you live in LA now for four or five years, and mm-hmm. uh, you made that move over to Apple. What, was there a point in, in radio where you and I genuinely think because I'm 41 now that I had a midlife crisis last year. Mm. Now I've got the benefit of hindsight. How did you know? Because I started looking backwards. For the first time in my Interesting. life. Interesting. Yeah. And I was started thinking, hang on. I've you done were reflecting s- on what you'd achieved yeah, and working out I've what I've done the yeah. same thing for 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I love it, mm-hmm. but it's, I need to learn something quick. Mm. Oh my God, I had the same vibe. So is that what happened to you? You mean why I went? Yeah. Or why you had, like, why you started looking elsewhere? Oh, well, I think. Because it's not just a job, it's a whole lifestyle change, what uh, you did. No, my ratings went down. All oh, right. And my, my ratings never went down. They were always consistent or they went up. And yeah. they went and they went down. What'd you say? You weren't used to that. Yeah, I wasn't used to it. Well, they went down once, fine. And that happened a couple of times, but then they went down twice. And then they went down a third time. Yeah, but that's rager. It's fine. Fucking rager. It's fine looking back on it now, but what it made me think was, once I got over the ego bruise of it, mm. it made me think, it made me ask the question, where are the audience going? And that was the most important question I could have asked at that time. Not what could I do better or what aren't you doing to promote my show mm. or any of those other things that are driven by the ego. Mm. I actually took a look at it from sort of 10,000 feet in the air mm-hmm. and looked at it more from an analytical point of view. Yeah. Like where is the audience actually going? And, and so I, on the third one, I said, look, it's fine. I know my, my numbers are dropping a bit. I get it. But can I ask a question? How's the rest of the UK doing at that time slot? And someone, Good question. Yeah. Yeah, and someone came back and said it's all down, and that was all I needed. That was it. It's like okay. Well, it's then not I knew. Just me. Well, it's then I, everyone. Well, then I knew. I knew that things were shifting, and um, and so for me, it was like, it wasn't that I what, and I didn't just jump ship. Like I, 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 you know, that was two or three years before I left. Um, the first order of business was to turn it around, which mm-hmm. we did, you know, and get myself back onto a solid footing because I didn't know what was around the corner or if any opportunity was coming. So I was like, you just got to make the most of what you have now. So you tried to d- turn the show around? Yeah. So as in like launch, relaunch it, n- new stuff, new features? It was even more simple than that. We just, we just, <laughs> we use social media. Like it's crazy to think about it now. Yeah. But there weren't many shows. Maybe you were doing it and someone else, but not many shows were actually actively driving the conversation through their social media channel back then. Mm. Not that I was aware of it, Radio 1 at least. And so we just started to connect the audience and the, and the artists through our portal. Mm. And... We'd started to notice the retweets and all those things, you know, artists liked it. And then, you know, that's content marketing. And so mm. next thing you know, you know, things turn around. I don't know. Maybe it was just like you say, Raja, Raja who knows that mm. thing's weird. It's so weird. But, um, but for me, it just, that was when it planted the seed and not that I needed to leave, but it, it made me think not dissimilar, I suppose, to what you just did. Like, what is the next step? Because mm. I just can't stay here forever. Mm. Either I'm going to get moved on or I'm going to get bored and move myself on. And I need to get to a point, if I can help it, where I can come to that place before either of those two things happen. Because again, you just want to end things well. Mm. You just, I just love putting a ribbon on things and knowing that that part of my life is done. And I always kind of regretted a little bit, not that I'm one for regrets, but you know, I I stayed too long on Gonzo. I mean, most people listening won't even know what that show was, but it was a bit of a cult show on MTV too. And a lot of bands started by watching that after school. I mean, the Monkees famously said, you know, we, we used to run home and watch Gonzo and that's kind of how we all used to sort of bond over music. And we stuck around too long. We stuck around on that show too long. We should have knocked it out, knocked it on the head, you know, a couple of years earlier than mm. that. I just didn't want to make that mistake again. So you kind of knew from that. You had it. You had yeah, it. I knew. And, and and like I said, I got the ratings back up. And so I knew that the, the audience was still there. And mm. you've proven that. And other shows have proven that, you know, that the audience still exists for the, for, the, for the station and for what you do. But for me, it made me think. It just made me think. Yeah. It just made me question. Let's talk about the ribbon that you put on it. Mm. Your last show. Oh, man. Okay, so... I couldn't wait for it to be over. I was in that studio, right? <laughs> just just for one second, look at it from my perspective, okay? Mm. So I'm taking over your slot, mm-hmm. right? It's your last show. There's a hashtag, hashtag thank you, Zane, mm-hmm. that your producer set up. Mm-hmm. Every single fucking artist in the world has mm-hmm. done the hashtag. We're talking Adele, like big emotional outpourings of gratitude. I still get alerts. Coldplay. Ha- Harry Styles' tweet still shows up on my timeline. That guy's so- sent a pint to the studio. <laughs> like everyone who With a note tweeted. saying we never liked you though, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but that's Irish humor, obviously. Sure. But I'm sitting in the studio going, what the fuck? Like how intimidating yeah. could, do you want to be anyone else? So can I- Just like- 
do you know, does anyone want to come back from the dead here? So, like Biggie Smalls <laughs> sent a message from heaven. So can I, add, can I add something to that story? At the end of my last show, there was a photo taken of everybody <laughs> that had ever worked on the yeah. show. Do you know where I'm going yeah, with this? I think so. And in this photo is everyone who's ever touched the show. Mm. So there's an, and a few extras who are still there for the final song. So there's probably 10 to 15 of us in this photo, all crammed in group shot. Where am I? Right stuck at the back, top left-hand corner, almost out of frame. Where's fucking Annie Mac? Front and center in the middle of the photo with everyone surrounding you like, it's Annie's show. I was like, wow, how no! quickly they forget. I'll show you. Oh my God. It's the best photo. I remember showing Cara later that night and she was just like, well, that does it, babes. You're out. <laughs> Oh my god! I had no idea. But did you know? How, did you know I had one of the worst hangovers in my life that day? No. I'd been out the night before with Jeff Barrow from oh, Portishead wow. and a wow. mutual friend called Tom, and we we were staying in a hotel because we were all our stuff was in a yes. on a ship halfway across America yeah. to, to America, I should say. So we were staying in a hotel, and um, we went out for dinner, and then because we were staying in the hotel, we stayed in the in the restaurant or the bar till I don't know two thirty three in the morning, something like that. And I didn't think at the time that I'd overcooked it. Yeah. But I woke up the next morning and I was just a write-off. Oh, no. Like, like really bad. Like, I don't think I can do the show bad. Shit. Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, yeah, man. Like, I, I went with Cara to pick the boys up for their last day at school. Came back to the hotel. And, um, in fact, no, I didn't even. Cara had to go get them on her own because yeah. she had to drop me back at the hotel where I lay on the couch and I honestly, I, I just wished so hard for just 45 minutes sleep. Please just let me close my eyes. And I did. And I got 45 minutes sleep almost on the dot. Yeah. And I woke up and it saved the it whole saved the oh day. Because before that, I couldn't string a sentence together. Well, I really, I was very responsible. But I was also, I think, just kind of desperate for it to be over. I feel so, I've seen so many of these shows. I've seen it with Sarah Cox. Mm. I've seen a lot of people's last links and last shows. And it's excruciating because everyone from the station comes in absolute goodwill oh, and stands around and stands outside the studio and inside the studio and watches. So your last link, and you've only ever spoken to the audience. Suddenly you have an audience of people that you like know from the bloody canteen and work and stuff that, and you're like now you have to deliver I always feel like if that was me I'd want everyone just to fuck off oh, do you know I in the nicest possible way do you know I was on my 40th birthday 33,000 feet in the air away from a party so yeah. there, there was no opportunity for anything surprise yeah I booked it deliberately in case yeah. there was a surprise yeah yeah we're yeah. out yeah yeah I mean, I did such a good job of avoiding my 40th birthday. My wife and kids forgot to wish me happy birthday on my birthday for two hours until I had to remind them, you know, it's my birthday, right? No, I couldn't wait for it to be over. I was, uh, you know, and it wasn't that I wasn't grateful and I wasn't thankful and I wasn't emotional like everybody else. But you're right. I mean, anybody would feel that. And then you, you factor in my levels of anxiety mm. and my OCD and mm. how socially awkward I can be. Mm. And you put that in there. It was just... It was a lot, but you know, people still talk about that show like it was great. So yeah. I think you know, we you know, we did it. We did the damn thing. I played you the held it down really well. Yeah, and then I went and got even more drunk. Yeah, and your fr your last record was Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That that band has always kind of bookended things. Joe Harland, again, our mutual friend, told me today that the first time I ever spoke to you, I was pretending to be a competition entrant That's on right. your pilot. On the pilot. In pilot order, number one. In order to win a uh, hypothetical session with Queens of Stone Age personal tattoo artist. You remember hypothetical? <laughs> I, I had no idea. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I had no recollection. Wow. Hypotheticals, remember those? Yeah. <laughs> Hey oh. Hey, um, do you remember calling me after I got the show? Or before you left for LA? Yeah. You called me and yeah. it was really, really, really Yeah. Uh, lovely. Because you wished me super well. And you gave me amazing advice, mm. which was just be you. Which yeah. sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but I listened to your first show. I was oh, in my God. hotel. I went to we went away to our, to uh, the beach for a couple of days up up the in Cornwall, and yeah. um, came back and we had one or two days I think to kick it in London before we flew on the Tuesday, and uh, so on the Monday night was our last night in London, and I tuned in and oh, I listened God. on Monday. Mm. Yeah, what did you start with? You started with a giant band. peach, Wolf Alice. Wolf Alice. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it sounded great. Yeah, you know I listened to the first hour or so, and then wasn't it weird though? Because when, when I've listened to other people do my show, well, it took me about, can I just say, about two years to start calling it my show and not call it Zane's show. But when I, when nah. I, even when I go on maternity leave and stuff mm. and people do it, I find it very difficult. Yeah, I never liked having depths either, but, mm. I, I, but I liked having holidays more, so yeah. I was totally fine with it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> was it weird? Of course, yeah, it was weird. It was weird because, it was weird because I had an evening mm. on mm. a Monday. Mm. So I was like, and I liked that. Oh. No, I liked that. I was like, yeah, I could get used to this. Yeah. So I, so that was cool. But you know what? The f- it, no, it was weirder waiting for it to start. Mm. It was weird. The anticipation of you coming on was weird because I felt nervous for you mm. and detached from my perspective. Um, but then once you started and Wolf Alice played and I knew you were in your groove and you were just being you and you were you know, as good as you've always been. Mm. I felt good. I felt calm. I'm, in fact, I actually distinctly remember saying to Kara and Seth, who was with us, Seth and Rach, you know, family and their yeah, kids were yeah. with us, you know, them. And um, I said, uh, I feel good. She's, this is right. This feels like the right show and the right person to do it. And, and it's not even like I have a say. It's not even like I'm invested anymore in it. Once you leave, you've got to leave. But emotionally, I still was. I wanted it to be great. I wanted you to be it's happy. 12 wanted, years of your life. Yeah. And I wanted the, I wanted the slot to continue. And, um, and I knew already at that point, because we were thinking about, what Beats One was going to be, I knew I wasn't going to put my show in that slot. Yeah. So, so I kind of wanted it to to continue and to build on what we'd done. If you've had any, if you've been lucky enough to ever help, sort of have a have a piece, be it big or small, of anything for a period of time, then and you hand it over, then the worst thing you could do is hope that it fails. Mm. You know, you want it to continue. Mm. I mean, it's kind of meaningless if it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It only means something to you, and that's not good enough. Zane, what is the um, what's the next ten years going to look like for you? Mm. Are you one of those people that have the plans out, that plans forward, like has a kind of rough manifesto yeah. in your head of how you want your life to be? Yeah, it tends to happen around the same time. Once I got a handle on what it is I'm doing, mm. then I start to think about what I can sort of add on, or what new challenges I can take on I, I simultaneously though in parallel I, I never really think about big substantial moves until I've done the damn thing okay like if I've done the damn thing then I'm ready for change that's cool but while I'm doing the damn thing I'm always looking to amend and improve and add on and so you know four odd years in this job and you know I have a new job jobs you know yeah, which is the global creative it's, director. it's a it's global creative director i'm there's two of us me and larry jackson we're partners and yeah. basically in the relations side of things which is um you know he and i have built our respective teams to um just work really closely with artists and managers in the creative and then and then just we try to feed apple music with as much of that as possible so that we can get ahead of the business yeah and um be prepared and create really meaningful collaborations and creative opportunities for artists and streaming, right? Mm. It's something we're really passionate about because we recognize that streaming is such an effective and functional distribution of music that that can be forgotten about. Mm. And so, you know, Larry, excuse me, Larry was was taught, I mean, he's had the mentors. Mm. He worked with Clive Davis, and but he also worked with Jimmy for years. And so, and I worked with Jimmy and, and what Jimmy really sort of, what he really taught me and Larry is that, you know, artist comes first. 
And I always felt that way, but he taught me from his perspective, which gave me a lot more. I mean, I learned a lot from him. I still do. And um, so when I when I came to to Apple, we were so artist driven and artist focused, and that kind of Beats One was the the you know the primary lane through which all of that travelled. And we decided that Apple Music it could benefit now. It's time to build an actual department around that. So there's that. But then I'm also kind of across the the, the radio things, make sure it's clearly done. And then I'm also traveling all around the world trying to interview these artists who don't travel because it's a seller's market and they don't need to. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got to go to, sorry, mate, you want to go talk to Justin Vernon, you should go to Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then there's the radio show. So there's just a lot of stuff. So yeah, I am thinking about what the next steps are going to be. And I've got some cool ideas. You know, I've got, great management outside of Apple that works in parallel with what I do at Apple, which is cool, mm. really sm- like super, super good company. And with Irving and his company's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and it's funny what you thinking. do because no one's ever done like in that you have, you come from an artist perspective, then you're, you're, you're working as a presenter um, and then going into that business kind of more, more kind of corporate, even though it doesn't, it's not corporate, but it sounds. No, Apple's like, a corporation. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's kind of, it's, it's a funny amount of hats mm. that you wear. It's strange, right? Right? Yeah, it is. And on a bad day, it seems like I'm not getting any, wearing any of them right. Yeah. You know? But on a good day, I feel like I'm learning more every day than, than I ever have before. Mm. And um, I, I think that the only thing that I don't really have time for that I immediately am starting to make a little more time for is the is getting back in the studio space. Okay, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah. Because like, you did a lot of that. I did. And that was really starting to pick up momentum when Apple called. It's just funny how this always works for me. I mean, every yeah. at two or three times in my life, I'm faced with this question, you know, which one are you going to choose? And the rest of the time, I, I strike a balance between the two. But at some point, you got to make that decision, right? Mm. And so I, I made a decision to go in and continue to do this thing because I felt the opportunity was too great and the learning was going to be too great. Um so I'm starting to kind of get back in that space a little bit more. I had my first session actually the other day, which was <gasps> super fun. No way. Yeah, with Tom Morello. That was wow. Really cool. I don't know if I should say that, but who cares? Wow. Tom won't care. And, wow. um, How exciting. That was really cool. And um, just, I don't know, man. I mean, I just, I, that's an easy add-on for me if I can find the time to do it because yeah. it feeds my soul. Yeah. It's it's not like I'm going out there and developing a new business strand. I mean, you can talk. You've got like, your empire's nuts. <laughs> Like how many festivals do you have now? Five? <laughs> oh. You got Malta. Yeah, we've got, got this London thing. You got now. the London thing, mm. the jazz cafe thing. Yeah. And yeah. then something else brewing, I'm sure. There's something else brewing. You know? And mm. I, I mean I already know. I mean, you like I admire your hustle. Like you absolutely but I've I've I'm feeling the same in in, in as you in that I, that I find that really creatively stimulating. Sorry, really stimulating, and I'm learning. But creatively, I yeah. don't feel fed, and so I've been like because because you know you've become a business woman, and I never intended to do that, and I never intended to be. It's a funny, isn't man. it? Yeah. Like, but but I think you know if you learn enough, and look, I think it's okay, I think it's a good thing that yeah. people like us are in situations we're in because we're we're coming in with the artist in mind mm. and we're coming in with the fan in mind because we're both fans mm. so we want to create the best experience whether it's your festival or it's my you know whatever i'm doing in streaming we want to create an, an environment that super serves those two things mm. which is the artist and the fan of which you're both mm. and of which i'm both so it's it's good and i think that's one of the positive things about the entertainment industry right now is that you know, there are more people who are artist oriented or artists themselves stepping into more controlling positions. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I love that side of it. And that's one of the things I'm really proud of at Beats is we gave the artists so much of the real estate to yeah. control themselves, you know, yeah, yeah. and that's really worked. Like that's still, like we have five shows coming out in the next three months that are really good. And that's, that, that I mean, that phone still rings. And that must be a lovely part of your job. Yeah. Going to artists and saying, hey, I want to give you a platform where you can do whatever you want, play whatever you want. Take it. That is the fun part. The not so fun part is when they get angry or upset, and then you have you to have take to an angry call from an artist because you know I'm not used to that. I'm used to just being the good guy. Yeah, of course. So sometimes you have to sort of like, uh, and and also as we know, you know, um, the artistic spirit can 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 move the needle both ways. Yes. <laughs> very, di- very diplomatic way of saying that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, they can. You know, it's it can be a unique conversation. Mm. But that's what makes it exciting and great, mm. and that's why we do it is is to is to put ourselves in the middle of this really magic process, mm. and um, it's the thing that ultimately has always moved me from the minute I first picked up a record and looked at the back cover, which was Tom Petty and was produced by Jimmy Iovine. 
Fuck. That's mad. Isn't that's that mad. Does Jimmy inspire you when you look at him in terms of his production <sighs> credits? Does he still produce, or is he? Is nah. he? He's kind of made that. Not that, that I'm aware of. Now. Not that anyone's aware of. I don't think so. No, no, no. I don't think so. I mean, I don't know if he has or hasn't recently. But um, does he inspire me? Oh my god. I mean, infinitely. And it's funny because when I he he sent me a really early edit of Defiant Ones, um, before it had come out. You've seen it. I have seen. Of course, it's crazy, it. right? Yeah. And um, and he sent me a text like, "What do you think?" And I was like, Jimmy, it's like the greatest. Mm. It's the greatest. Mm. Like, congratulations. Like, your life's a hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. your final, if this is your last kind of big hit in yeah. terms of the music business, it's your life. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. And and he came back and I didn't say that, but you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and he came back and he was like, what did you take from it? And I said that I don't work nearly hard enough. And And that's really the thing that I'm constantly in awe of is that no matter how many hours I put into what I'm doing or any, no matter how much mental time or, you know, investment of time or energy I'm putting into something um, that, you know, I, I've worked for some of the most impressive people mm. in the world and in, in the industry I'm most passionate about. And I'll, I may never get to that level, but it inspires me to try. Mm. And, you know, he works so hard, which is amazing because he, he he never needed to, I don't think. He always says he did, but his instincts are so sharp, it's ridiculous. Like mm. that guy can, you know, see around so many corners. He's almost looking at his own back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's crazy. So, I mean, yeah, I've learned a lot from him. I was very fortunate to get that, that time with him before he decided to go on and try new things. And he still consults with us, but you know what I mean? In terms of like every day, people always ask, is Jimmy in the office? Like every day, mm. I, you know, I'd get this, like someone would come up and go, oh, you know, Jimmy wants to see you. I'd be like, wicked. Yeah. What's he got? Yeah. What am I going to, what am I walking into? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Come on, man. We've got 10 more you're minutes. A, what else you got? You're a dream to interview. What else you got? Imagine that. Imagine you being <laughs> like... Um, I used I, to hate that. I, mean, I used to, I used to what, hate... Did you hate being interviewed? Oh, I used to hate it. Why? Oh, my God. Because I never felt like I had anything to say, you know? And it was only until I got a certain point in my life where I think I'd done enough things that were sort of, quote, unquote, potentially interesting. And also, once I acknowledged that I, that I you know, um, was flawed, that I realized that I had, you know, anxiety... Yeah. And had had bouts of depression and had OCD and these things. Once I acknowledged those things and came out the other side of that, I realized, oh, okay, now's the time you can probably start talking about yourself because yeah. um, it will help you. And if that conversation ever comes, it might help somebody else. There's nothing to hide. Exactly. Mm. But before that, it just felt like, oh, man, you know, mm. what do I say? Because mm. mm. you couldn't be honest? No, because I just didn't feel interesting. Okay. You know, I think that's part of the reason why I've always invested in the conversation with somebody else is I just... I think other people are more interesting. How do you approach those, like the big interviews? I, mem I remember going into the studio after your Kanye interview and, mm. and speaking to you and your producer and you were just like, whoa. Yeah. Like, how do you mentally prepare for a, like a like a, an interview with an artist of that caliber? Of that caliber? Yeah. Well. Because you've done the 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 greats yeah, pretty saying, much. Yeah, I was saying to someone today, I think I've probably reached my 10,000 hours now in terms of the amount of time I've spent interviewing people. That's crazy, right? Um, but how much time do you prepare well, it depends. Like, if it's live and it's someone I know, not very much. I listen to the music. That's the absolute must courtesy. Mm. You know, I know, know what I'm talking about. I've got to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but I try to keep it as kind of, at this point in my life, excluding the ones you're talking about, which we'll get to, I like the idea of life talk even more than promo talk. Mm. Like, this is interesting to me mm. because we're learning something about each other and we're, we're reminiscing in a, mm. in a lifetime kind of way. Mm. Um, you know, I've done enough promo interviews, man. I've done enough hawking records. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, for me now, it's like, yeah, we'll give you the chance to tell people your music streaming. But, man, I do live interviews with artists all the time. We don't even mention it. Like, I talked to King Princess the other day, who I know you know, who's just mm. the, the charismatron. Mm. And she just is incredible. And I don't think we talked about music once. Mm. That's like, the dream. Like, maybe for like five minutes in mm. an hour, and the rest of it was just talking about everything else. And so I'm just getting into the curiosity of life now because I've done so much talking about music. Mm. I'm fine to apply it, and I love playing it, and I love listening to it. But when it comes to talking, I'd rather talk about stuff. 
and make music the thread that flows through it rather than the whole point. That being said, if you're going to sit down and talk to Ye, then you should probably be prepared. Not that that helped me on that particular day, <laughs> yeah. but the way I prepare for those ones is I write out an imaginary conversation no way. of questions. All so the way with down. retorts, with that. No, I don't no. go that far. But I write out the question. I just, I just, I brainstorm questions blah, 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 for as long as I feel inspired, and then I put them in an order of how I think the conversation should run, mm. and then I categorize them into groups, and then I memorize the ca- the categories. So there might be six, there might be ten, there might be twelve categories. You know, um, album, God. album, um, uh, relocation. I'm making this up. Yeah. Travel, marriage. Whatever the the subject matters I want to cover are, and then I go in with the with the with the footprint in my head, and then I, I write down the categories a few times to commit them to memories. How I used to study, because yeah. I used to cram, yeah. and um and then I go in and then I just try to follow the conversation with the knowledge that it's in my head, and then if if I get stuck, it's there I can draw on it, but I don't want to necessarily have it. Except for Tom York, I had the questions beside me for Tom York because okay. I was so scared. Yeah, yeah. What's been your worst? <laughs> what's been your worst memory of an interview oh my god Zane is now rubbing his face like he's traumatised have have I brought back some <laughs> some badness oh man come on so there clearly is one or are you trying to there's think there's a few I mean if you could like choose it's, it's hard like what I used to tell the story all the time about when I interviewed Grinder Man how they asked the producer who's sitting behind me if he could replace me and he could ask the questions and I would go and sit at the back of the room. That was rough. Oh but I used to tell that story like it was like, you know, a funny anecdote. But I love Nick Cave. Mm. And I and I I admire him so much as a as an artist and as a human that I don't like throwing that story out now like it's like the mm. default bad interview mm. answer. Mm. And I'm glad I'm actually saying this because why should he like me? There's no guarantee that's going to happen. It's not his job to like me. It's his job to make music. It's my job to try to make him mm. feel inspired by my questions. And I got it wrong. I got it wrong. And and I just really admire him. So, you know, I, I've stopped telling that story like it's the thing. Like, yeah, it was a bad interview. Mm. You have them. Mm. It happens. You know, I had some terrible interviews with Blur. Now, Damon Albarn's one of my favorite people on the planet. Mm. But when I used to interview them, they were terrible. But I mean, so what? Like, I mean, I'm lucky. I've had so many more good ones than bad ones. Talking about What's that, your worst? That I, oh, um, oh, Crystal Castles. Before they split up. Oh, man, I mean. It wasn't so great. Yeah. Um, there was long, long uh, silences. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've kind of had to learn over the years. I, I, I've only been doing, I nearly said your show, this show <laughs> since, tw- since 2015, right? Yeah. So it's only been four years since yeah. I've been doing this multi-format interviewing this. And I've learned so much and I'm still learning about interviewing. Yeah. And the biggest thing I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn and still like get over is the idea of people having to like you. Because you can't help your ego wanting to be liked. Of course. You can't help wanting them to leave and think... She's she's all right. Isn't you see, she? I got this advice when I first started when I was in New Zealand working at a free to air music channel, and an old friend of mine said to me, who'd been in broadcasting way longer than I have, and he was older than I was, and he said to me, "Let me give you a few bits of really key advice." And one of them was, "Try to never let your self esteem rest it. on the affections mm. of your subject, mm. because it's a job, mm. and just try." Mm. And I know you're a fanboy, but it's just try not to. And so I, I try to hold on to that. I mean, obviously you can't always. I mean, I still get giddy. I still get giddy when I see Jay Z. Last time I saw him was at a Rock Nation party, and I nearly pissed my pants. <laughs> so I still, you know, I still get nervous. I still get. Yeah. I mean, I literally, I had, I had before the Tom interview this year, I had no sleep. I so much. The jet lag was so bad. I, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And he was so amazing and accommodating and beautiful and funny and charming that I literally skipped out of that pub. Like I was like, I was like saying hi to people in the street, like, hey, you have a great day. Like, so I'm still totally capable of having my mood completely affected by that experience. It's, it's, it's inhuman not to. What about, what about asking the questions that you know they don't want to be asked? This is still, again, it's tough. I'm really bad at getting in there and just. Me too. Oh. No, me too. Look, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not known for my hardball. 
you know, don't get me wrong. If I see an opening, I'll I'll go in there. If I think there's an opportunity to respectfully cover ground that I think is interesting, I'll do my best to navigate it appropriately. Mm. But I don't ever go into an interview thinking, right, I've got my softball intro. Here's my hardball section. Yeah. Like, I'm just not that person. I really admire people who are. Like I'm a like I'm a fan of the Breakfast Club. Like I watch their interviews. I love the oh, Club. I watch their interviews, and I'm like, that is the main man. Well, that is the model because look, this is what it is, and what I'm doing right now because you can't see it is I like, constantly hold up the Breakfast Club as a model to all my bosses. Going, see, people are oops. happy to have an interview that's an hour long. Sorry, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I love that. Sorry, I broke your coaster, but for good reason. This is the model, right? Mm-hmm. This is the subject. Okay, right Zane's there. drawing a diagram, right? Yeah. So right in the middle of the flat part of the triangle? Yeah. Left, right, yeah. and in front. Yeah. Oh, you're surrounded. You're there's surrounded. There's no way out. No. So every time you answer that one, here comes one from here, and then there's one Ooh. from here, and one Ooh. from here, Ooh. and one from here, and there, and there, and there, yeah. and there, and there, yeah. and it's just wild. Yeah. And I, I just really, I, I love watching it. I love listening to it, and but it's just not me. And I think one of the most important things in life is that we discover who we are or try to continue throughout our life to continue to better discover really what our, you know what we do and what makes us unique and, and what we're trying to say. And I say this to, to, to our kids all the time, me and Cara, you know, to Jackson and Lucius, you just got to continue to try and find your voice and continue mm. to try and define who you are. It's fine to, to, to borrow and to be inspired. And as you're learning to create and, you know, it's cool. But eventually when you're faced with your own identity, don't run from it. Yeah. And keep it. Keep hold on to it. it. Yeah. Hold on to it. That's an important moment in your life. And mm. so I'm not that person. I'm like you. I, I don't go into it to try to to try to um, deliberately catch people out. I'm not saying the Breakfast Club do, by the way, just disclaimer, FYI. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just not in my nature to do that. But I mean, we're doing all right, you know? Mm. We, people come through our door. Mm-hmm. So we must be doing something right. Mm. And I mean, you've had a great run. What's been your favorite since you did? Uh... Kendrick. <sighs> just because great? I felt like he was like some sort of divine deity. He felt like the closest thing I've ever come to someone who was like beyond yeah. human. <laughs> that sounds no, so not... over dramatic. No, no, no. I get his it. aura, his presence, his Do you know what I generosity, described? his. I tried to describe him in, in, in the context of other human beings, which is very tough because he's such an individual, but he reminded me of like someone who's like, like Tupac and Bob Marley mm. or something. Like he had that energy of like revolutionary, mm. which can go either way. It can either go fight for your right, but it was also, he also had this sort of super meditative, calm, insane meditative, spiritual yeah. feeling about him. Yeah, yeah. So he would float through certain answers and then other answers, he'd sort of show you this, this look of like, but I'm a fighter. Yeah. Like I'm a fighter. Yeah. So it was like a fascinating balance between the two. And he really thinks like he's, you know, he really takes your answer in and he turns it around or your question turns it around and thinks, you know, he kind of does justice to your question in that a lot of people, Mm. I don't know, that's the thing that I found the most is that the greats are the ones who will give you the most time and respect. And yeah, because they've got less to prove. They reach a point, it's not that they don't have anything to prove anymore, they're still ambitious and hungry, but they have more important things to prove than, you know, to try to undermine somebody in order to make their, to, 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 to allow their ego to feel some kind of bump of adrenaline. Yeah. You know, what you're dealing with at that point is that you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with someone who's reached a plateau in their life where they, where they feel confident in who they are mm. and the work is all that matters. And if you can get to a place where the work is really all that matters outside of family and friends, mm-hmm. um, then you'll find that those people will be less difficult mm. to deal with mm. because they wouldn't be talking to you if mm. they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the place I always try to get to. Mm. I'm fine talking to anyone who wants to talk about their shit. I'm mm. cool. Let's mm. go. I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. But I'd rather, you know... I waited three years to talk to Post Malone. Two and a half years to talk to Post Malone. He doesn't talk to anybody. And when I finally got him, I knew he wanted to do it. Yeah, which that, is the best scenario. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. Um, Zane, it's five o'clock. I know. You've got to go. It was really fun though. So fun. Do you have guests on more than once? Uh, yeah, come back. I'll, I'll call you next time you're in London. We'll talk about, we'll talk about you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Zane. What a conversation that was. So interesting and gratifying to get that time with him and learn about his perspective of that time that he had at Radio 1 and uh, how he approaches life and work now. 
Um, if you have anything to say, you know, I would love to hear from you. FindingAnnieMac at gmail.com or obviously just go and put a comment on the Instagram, which is AnnieMacDJ. Um, and let's talk radio. Let's reminisce. Um, okay, so next week on the show is one of my favourite conversations I've done for this podcast so far with a really esteemed and incredible woman called Suzanne Moore. I've been reading her articles for a good few years now. She writes for the Guardian newspaper and her articles are always direct as fuck. There's no hyperbole. There's no skirting around the edges of a point. She is direct. She is super impactful. She is hugely brave and courageous in how she talks about her feelings. And that's why she's an award-winning columnist. She's also in her 60s and talks really openly about growing older as a woman. And that is what next week's episode is all about. Cannot wait for you to hear it. I think you have to behave as though you're going to live forever, knowing that you're not. I think these two things are, you know, you keep both of them, you hold on to both of them. I, I remember when Derek Jarman, who I who I loved, he was, um, you know, he had his fantastic garden in, at Dungeness and, and he was dying, you know, he had... HIV and he was dying and he was planting stuff and somebody said to him in an interview are you what's it like planting things knowing that you might not be here to see them because he was very ill and he said everybody who plants something nobody knows whether they're going to be there to see it but you should do it anyway and I thought that was kind of a brilliant like way to think about living you know and then none of us know but we could still do the planting having said that you can see i've got astroturf in the garden (laughs) (laughs) all right folks see you next week on finding annie for all talk about growing older it's going to be a deep one When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.